When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named December. And December was in a toxic relationship with a carrot-dangling abuser. It's a story of self-worth, isolation, push-pulls, triangulation, and financial abuse. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have December. How are you? Doing really good, Brandon. Well, thank you very much for being here. And if you want to be a guest on our show like December is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com top of the page there's a button that says guest form when you click on that button it takes you to our guest form page there you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at narcissistapocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our guest form and press the submit button and please do send it in the format that we ask for and today you are going to hear december's story and it's a little different from some others as December and her ex aren't officially a couple for a very long time in this story begins as a friendship with a really built-in long game dangling carrot and a big content warning for this episode we have graphic discussion of sexual coercion suicide attempts suicide threats and physical abuse in this episode so if this isn't for you please turn this episode off So with that being said, I'll get out of my way and your way. December, the floor is now yours. Well, thank you. Um, I'm really excited to be on the show and kind of be able to share my story. And I'm really hoping that, you know, listeners can learn about this probably slightly more unconventional story. So, yeah, you know, just about me. only child. I was born in Canada. Both my parents actually met through a religious church group, if you would call it that. I jokingly now call it the cult. Um, They had some pretty, pretty interesting beliefs. Um, One of them was that you pretty much had to be engaged in order to date. So interestingly enough, my parents, I think, were engaged by the second date and married probably in about 
I want to say six months at least. Um, growing up with them, I was not just the only child, but also the only grandchild. And even though I was born in Canada, we moved down to the States to be with my mom's family. Mom's family was interesting. There was a lot of um, just kind of volatile family interactions, very religious, um, kind of fundamentalist in a lot of their beliefs. And it, I don't know, it was just kind of a, a lonely life a little bit, just being an only child. Um, we moved a lot. Like, I want to say I was in a new school almost every year. And because of the religious element of growing up, did you think that that was normal? Or at a young age, did you think that this was a little weird? You know, I, something always felt a little weird, and it's the pettiest thing. <laughs> like, as a little kid, I loved the elements of fantasy. I mean, we're talking the 80s when you've got, like, you know, legends coming out and labyrinth and you know, stuff with unicorns, like the last unicorn. So as a little girl in the 80s, I was all about that stuff. And my parents were involved in that church group for like, till I was about eight. And I remembered there were just things that they would tell us that didn't really correspond with what I heard from like my extended family or even in school. And I remember just being like, well, screw this. Because um, our pastor told us that dragons were evil, and I thought dragons were awesome. And it didn't make sense to me. Like, why would something that doesn't even exist be evil? You know? Um, and I, I guess there was just a part of me that never really felt connected to it. It didn't get me. Um, even when I was baptized, I didn't really feel different. And I just didn't feel much warmth from that group. Um, so it just never really stuck. And I guess my appearance too, like I was always this kind of pale kid with like my dad's side of the family is very black Irish. So it's like that kind of black hair, you know, um, pale skin. And so even in school as a kid, I was made fun of for looking weird. Um, it didn't matter if I was overweight or not. And then if I, as I started like, you know, kids kind of gain a little bit of weight as they kind of go through like second grade to sixth grade, I was mercilessly bullied for it. It's like it would be this cycle where I'd go to school, kids would see, seem friendly, and then they wouldn't be friendly, and then they'd bully me. But then it would kind of resolve towards the end of the year, and I would actually start making friends, and then we'd move. So, I mean, it's just, I think a lot of the feedback that I started getting was, okay, well, if, this, if kids at this school and this school and this school and this school are saying this, then obviously this must be something wrong with me. And so I just kind of you know, between that and my grandma was always really negative with feedback. Could be very critical of others' appearances. I just kind of took it all in as, you know, I'm not very attractive. I'm ugly. I'm fat. Nobody wants me, you know, and friendships seemed really hard. I want to say um, seventh grade is kind of when I found my tribe, um, so to speak, and then we moved. I, I still actually retained most friends from that time, but my focus shifted from getting really, really good grades because I was always a really good student. Like I stopped caring about grades um, about eighth grade. I just didn't, I didn't see the point anymore. Like what's the point if I'm just going to move again anyways? I got really kind of despairing about it. So I, my focus very much shifted to relationships and friendships were everything. Like they were my bread and butter life or death. 
so is it fair to say that at grade eight, you were putting your worth into other people to derive your worth completely oh, at yeah. that point? Yeah, it was. I also had kind of a toxic best friendship around that time, too, so I don't think that helped. But a lot of my worth, I would see it as, you know, from all these different mirrors that were kind of surrounding me. Um, what sucked, though, is because I grew around so many, like, distorted mirrors. I accepted that as this is who this is what I look like. This is what I am, you know. And was your parents' relationship an influence as far as how you viewed relationships? And what did that relationship look like? I would say my mom was is a very powerful woman. Um, she's definitely the kind you want to have in your corner, not out of your corner. But when she's upset, she's gotten much better over the years. But she was, a, we'll say she was a dragon. And my dad... I would say was definitely more kind of followed her lead in a lot of ways. Um, but definitely, I mean, they would have some terrible fights sometimes, um, not frequently. I mean, I would also see them being really affectionate to each other. Um, like almost every night, my dad would be like giving her a back massage or, you know, scratching her back or something. But they they stuck together pretty well. And I think in the back of my mind, it was like, you stick it out no matter how bad things can get. And what were your romantic relationships like in, I guess, your teenage years to before you ended up in a relationship with the person that this story will be about? Yeah. So before the ex, um, it was a struggle. I don't know what it was. It seemed just like in high school. Um, maybe I was kind of shy when it came to approaching people. I mean, I had crushes and sometimes I'd express interest, but it just didn't seem to get reciprocated. I want to say it wasn't actually until I was about 18 that I got my first like official boyfriend. I mean, I'd have people that I'd like kiss or whatever, but not, it seemed like no one wanted to be in a relationship with me. So first boyfriend was absolutely awful. <laughs> um. That's podcast for another day, is what I would say. Um, well, and I'll get into it when when I'm ready. But it was just very love balmy, telling me he loved me on the first date, um, and we initially connected over. I don't know if any. If, I don't know if all y'all '80s and '90s babies remember America Online. Uh, we connected over that because I wanted to seek out people who were into Skinny Puppy because I was obsessed with Skinny Puppy and. This one was more of a metalhead, definitely. Uh, ate, slept, breathed, death metal and thrash metal. I liked it okay, but um, I was always more into like industrial goth weird music, I guess I would call it. Um, and music was big for me. My dad was a musician, so so I dated him for like a year. And things were pretty volatile. He was not great to me. And... <sighs> there's some you know, elements of definitely emotional abuse, a little bit of physical abuse, um, destroying my things. Interestingly enough, that guy has since actually gotten in contact with me a few times to say, I was so terrible to you. And I'm like, yes, you were. But I'm like, oh, we were young. We were young. Thanks for the apology. 
So we've heard that you have self-acceptance issues. You have this belief that you aren't attractive. You are putting your worth into other people's hands at a young age. You are in this toxic relationship. You have a toxic relationship. So when it comes to your beliefs that we haven't discussed yet, what are other ones that might hinder you going forward? My mom was actually a really strong woman. She never raised me to be like, you need a man, blah, blah, blah. Like she was actually more the opposite. She would actually raise me to, you know, you need to get a good education and take care of yourself. Um, But I want to say around 18, 19, our relationship wasn't great. Um, There was a lot of me, we'll say I differentiated pretty hard um, or kind of like flew the nest. I was definitely, you know, pushing away pretty strongly. So I wasn't I, I wasn't going to go with that. I was going to go the opposite of what she was urging. Um, so there was definitely a belief that whoever, I mean, to be honest, my ex before the ex I'm talking about, I didn't think he was that attractive when I first met him, but he just, he seemed to be so into me and he was so nice. And I just, there was always this opinion of, I better just be grateful for what I get. It was nice having the attention, just having grown up feeling kind of lonely. And just the, I guess, the belief that, you know, you work through things no matter how hard they get. And I I mean, my sense of boundaries was almost non-existent back then. Hey guys, I'm Jamie Beebe. And I'm Jake Deptula. We're the hosts of the true crime podcast, Strictly Stalking, brought to you from Podcast One. Each week, Strictly Stalking gives stalking survivors the platform to share their stories in their own words. Do you know why survivors refer to stalking as murder in slow motion? Have you ever felt like you were being hunted by a stranger? Would you know where to turn if a stalker was living in your house and you didn't know? We're bringing you these stories to raise awareness about stalking and give you the resources to know what to do if you or someone you know is being stalked. So tune in to Strictly Stalking each week as we dive into the largely unknown crime of stalking. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite true crime podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So at the tail end of the relationship that you previously mentioned, uh, that boyfriend was a band groupie for a band that was fronted by the person who this story uh, is about. And this person was charismatic. He was funny. He was talented. That's why you liked him. And there was a scene going on, and you are now part of this scene and there's jam sessions and there's partying and this guy's brother is part of this band it's a bunch of 16 to 20 year olds and he was the leader of this little misfit group and you two started to hit it off and you started to confide in each other so what happens from here so i think what really clinched my friendship with my ex as it started out was the fact that I had started really 
talking to him and confiding him and he would say things like you know oh man you and i were on the same wavelength you know like um yeah he definitely came from a family of like very new age kind of spirituality so he would always make statements like you know being twin flames or you know things like that um and so i had called him after this really awful night with the first ex and it's like one in the morning and he had to he had to work but he's like no come on over we'll talk and he had this really deep heart to heart with me about what he was noticing with the both of us and basically just saying you can't be looking to this relationship for your validation you know you need to find it within yourself and like practically counseling me you know he basically said you you know I know this is going to be the hardest thing you have to do but you might have to you know either make some space or just let him go and the way he reacts will tell you who he is you know, and just blew me away that he made this time for me. Like I was worth making this time to talk to and to be there for. Um, so I broke up with the ex. And it was almost like after that, me and the ex this podcast is about, um, we became almost like best friends. He would like throw out little compliments here and there. Like he was definitely... He was a lot more open-minded to music, had a very expansive taste in music. So we could connect about all sorts of different bands. You know, he thought he actually had skinny puppy albums and thought, oh, he's, he thought I had really good taste. Um, he would compliment my outfits sometimes. I remember very clearly one day when we're driving, you're not wearing any makeup today. And I was like, no, no. And I was, I was feeling a little self-conscious that he noticed because I always wore makeup. And he's like, it looks good. You look really good without makeup. You know, he would just drop little things here and there or just be kind of almost more affectionate. I, I want to say most nights I would hang out with him and or hang out with him and his brother and we would just play video games and laugh and joke. So your relationship is starting off on this bedrock foundation of friendship and trust and you know mutual interest but also a mutual respect in a way that your uh, ideas or opinions of things are kind of equally valued you can go back and forth on on conversation is that fair to say oh absolutely like around this time when I had broken up with my boyfriend he was actually getting with this girl who I got pretty I got fairly close to her as well and um he was over the moon for her. And so we would kind of connect a lot. He'd kind of talk about the relationship. Um, but there was definitely this mutual trust of being able to kind of talk about our relationships with each other, connecting also kind of on like the new age kind of spirituality, because I had started around 18, kind of exploring that more for myself. And so he had this book that he loaned me called You Are Psychic and blew my mind. But um, yeah, just a lot of mutual trust. like. You know, if I was short some money from a paycheck, he'd loan me money and I'd pay him back or, you know, he helped me learn how to change a tire, <laughs> you know, things like that. Um, so a lot of trust was getting built. And now in hindsight, are there things that you notice about him back then Oh yeah, th that were a little bit troublesome, but when you're already in a situation where you trust is being built and you're getting this back and forth, you know, you're good friends. 
you're obviously not gonna always see these things. So what were these things about him? And when we're talking about abuser types, uh, where do you think he starts to fit in based on uh, these little traits that start to show? I mean, it was definitely, I would say, like the honeymoon phase of the friendship too. Um, so things weren't as noticeable, but um, a lot of drama seemed to surround him a lot. Um, and he would talk a lot of trash about people when they left. That was a big thing. He definitely played the victim with his girlfriend. I mean, what was what sucked, of course, is because, you know, I was kind of in his tribe, so to speak. I would almost say I was kind of like his second in command in the tribe. Um, I didn't get to hear her version of what happened, but like little stories that kind of trickled in uh, definitely brought the picture into focus, which was he was pressuring her to have a threesome when she wasn't comfortable with it. Um, and there are certain aspects of how he was treating her that she just wasn't okay with. And that's why she left. Um, but other ways that he was the victim, no, I don't think every, I don't think he ever owned onto anything being his fault. Definitely. I would say one thing that was really not a great, uh, cornerstone of our friendship that was kind of a part of the the foundation that he built was right around, yeah, this was right after the breakup with his girlfriend. He's over at my house and we're just hanging out and he confides in me, uh, something he hasn't really told many people. So of course, you know, there's that, you know, oh, you trust me. Um, and tells me he has lung cancer, which hit me like a ton of bricks because I was like, this is like my best friend. Um, person I love and care for deeply. And I was like, oh my gosh, what are you going to do about it? You know, what what are we going to do about this? Like, we can't let this happen. And he was very into the idea of homeopathic remedies and new age spirituality and that kind of helping him. And so I thought I have to do everything I can to help him because I thought realistically, he could die in the next year or two. And I want to make sure his life is wonderful. Did he have lung cancer? He's still alive, so probably unless he is a modern medical marvel, um, I don't think people live with lung cancer for what twenty years. So, no, I never had evidence that he did. And he never went to chemotherapy or anything like that. Oh hell, no, no, not at all, not at all. And how does he view a woman? Oh, definitely from the the player Lundy Bancroft list of abusers. I mean, definitely he had some trauma in his past. We'll say I'm not gonna get too personal about it, but we'll say from women and seemed to think he was God's gift to women in a lot of ways. Like he was put on this earth to please them sexually. Um, he definitely put women on a pedestal, but they were also just I think he viewed them very much as meant to be porn stars, but only for him. Um, and he was not held to the same regards or standards. Very objectifying about women. Um, as his friend, and even when we were dating, it was quite common if we were drive, if you know, if I was driving, um, if he was in the passenger seat and there was an attractive girl walking down the street, I mean, he would just stare and stare and stare like his eyes were a tractor beam that he just could not pull away. And it was so uncomfortable and so shaming for me 
but yeah, I'd say like the big hook for me was I I want to say I was starting to develop feelings, but I never thought like I was in his league. You know, it was always like, he's attractive. He's my best friend. I feel really close to him, but it's probably never going to happen. So I didn't really invest that way. So I would still kind of, you know, try to talk with people in our social group and, you know, see about, didn't really go on a lot of dates, but went on a couple. But I want to say right around the time he had broken up with his girlfriend, he had had this girl over and we all lived in the same house by this time, by the way, we were living in this woman's house. I had a room and he had a room. So he'd had this girl overnight and I felt super weird about it. I actually kind of avoided him for a few days. I wasn't really, I was trying to kind of sort out how I was feeling about this whole thing. And I guess on day three, he calls me into his room and he's like, hey, you know, I want to let you know, I kind of noticed how you've been. And it kind of seems like, seems kind of obvious to me that you have feelings for me. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Oh my God, he, because I was just, my heart just dropped because I thought, oh, here it comes. I'm going to get, I'm going to get the speech of, we can only be friends, you know, I only feel about you in a friendship way. And I think he could see it in my face because I've, I've heard this before, but it didn't go that way. It went, and I feel the same way about you. And I was just like, what? You know, it just felt, I swear there was like sparkles around him as he was, you know, saying this. I'm like, what, what, you mean you also feel, what? You know, it was so, like if Gary, if Gary Newman's, you know, Dream Weaver or whoever did that song would have been playing in the background, it would have, you know. Um, But then he goes to tell me he's not really ready to be in a relationship right now. And he doesn't want to ruin, uh, you know, this amazing friendship that we've built. So he's just going to kind of wait and see how things go before we deepen it. And I'm like, sure. And I mean, I was on cloud nine, I think for that week, I mean, probably skipping to my car before I went to work, but it was also kind of a tense time because there were other girls in our group that were into him. So here you are in a position where this person has built trust with you. He knows that you like him because of the situation that you're in. You're currently living in the same environment as him, which isn't the healthiest thing to be in. But he's now said that he also shares feelings for you, but he still kind of here wants to live the life he's been leading. So he's now put this uh, dangling carrot in front of you. And you are seeing all of these other people that are around him now, most likely in a jealous way. And oh, yeah. you are looking at him not as I like him anymore, but also in the sense of I have to win him. Mm-hmm. And that becomes a motivation for you where you stop looking at a lot of things that might be going on. And he is, he is in the driver's seat here and you are just waiting for him to make decisions. And you are now fully just ping ponging. You're an amoeba 
and when something like hits an amoeba, you're just reacting to stimuli at this point and your emotions and feelings are all over the place because of it, but at the same time being invalidated in a lot of ways. Oh, big time. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely like at his mercy or at the mercy of his decision. And the sad part was, is around this time, there was a, I mean, he wouldn't have been a great person to get with anyways, but I, I, I kind of burn a little bit when I think about like around this time, I could have probably gone dating other folks too, or I could have, you know, a pin in it with him and but still kind of saw what my options were but it's like this time I thought no I'm all in I'm gonna put all my eggs in this basket you know this is he's just he's so I mean it went from you know I love this person as my friend to like I think I'm in love with this person and it did feel really yeah I mean I almost felt kind of pitted against some of the other females um things really kind of came to a head when um there was this girl who she was attached she had a boyfriend she was very nice um really cool person he was into her and i think he somehow thought he was going had a chance with her even though from what i saw of their interactions she seemed to have a decent sense of boundaries so i think he just his own delusional um beliefs were maybe driving that but yeah i i want to say on this one night he was like saying he was going to talk to her and he was going to let her know how he felt. And at that point, I just, there's a lot of drinking involved that night. And I remember just being like, fine, fuck it. You know, I'm, I'm done. I'm just going to go downstairs and I'm just going to go pout in my room and this will be the end of it. I had so many of those moments in this relationship where I was just like, nope, nope, you know, um, fine, I give up you know, just feeling totally defeated, honestly. And lo and behold, he comes down to my room and asks me to come up to his. And I'm like, okay. And I was expecting once again, oh, here, here it comes. Here's the talk. Things went well. She's going to break up with her boyfriend and now they're going to be together. And I'm just preparing myself for this thing. And he tells me, well, as expected, you know, she's pretty honorable. She's not going to she's not going to mess with their boyfriend or, you know, she's not going to mess with that relationship. And I was, you know, I felt a little relief and then he kisses me. And I'm like, wait, what? And the next thing I know, we're sleeping together. It was pretty overwhelming. I remembered for three days being a little bit in shock about it. Um, or I don't even want to say shock, but just kind of like feeling that surrealness of like, we slept together, <laughs> like, and even coming to the jam, I was kind of not really with it. And then, yeah, I guess after that, like, we would visit each other in our rooms and we're kind of that for each other. And he knew I wanted a relationship more than anything. And it was always there's always this imperceivable vague point that I, I I would get with him, but just not right now. And it was painful. So eventually you wanted to move out of this apartment and this becomes a big escalation point in your relationship where different types of abuses 
start to begin. So take us through this. Oh, here we go. Um, around this time, I think he was quitting working for his uncle because, you know, he just was over it, I guess. But um, around this time, because I think we were so in such intimate friends now, I was actually moved. I moved from kind of like in the basement of this house to being in the room, like literally adjoining his. So I could pretty much hear anything that was going on in the room. And so at one point, I'm about to fall asleep and I hear him talking with one of our mutual friends just to kind of, I guess, put a frame on what was going on at the time. Uh, the lady that we were living with, she was just kind of a train wreck in a lot of ways. She would, you know, dishes would pile up. She was not a clean person. She would eat us out of house and home, didn't keep up on bills. So we had gone two weeks without hot water. So we were kind of ready to move on. Um, I had a good job. You know, um, he made decent money with his uncle, but he wanted to move on. And so he was looking into his other options and was actually going to move uh, out of state with a friend. And I felt like it was time for me to finally be on my own. And so I, you know, signed a lease on an apartment and just kind of provide the backstory for this story. Um, so one night I'm about to fall asleep and I hear my ex talking about, um, you know, just, you know, about the idea of having to move out of state, being, you know, with this other friend, you know, old friend that he had. And it was funny because we were so close, I think everyone could kind of perceive that there was something going on underneath the surface. And this friend is like, you're not going with December. And my ex is like, doesn't look like it. I mean, if she was a real friend, if she was a truly good friend, she she would invite me to come stay with her. And that I, I let that kind of percolate for a bit because I. You know, it's like sometimes in life you have these, you know, these like choice points, right, where these, these things kind of there's a fork in the road and as naive and boundaryless and codependent as I was back then, I could tell that was pretty manipulative. Like, I knew it, but there was so much guilt and concern for him, especially like, what if he does die in the next year or so, you know, like, it's like, if you know your pet's terminally ill, not that he's a pet, but, you know, you want to give them the best life you can. It's just a little displaced because I wasn't actually supposed to be responsible for him. That, that ate at me. The, the 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 seed of guilt was planted and it blossomed from there. Um, I went and talked to him later and was like, look, I'm really sorry. You know, maybe I should have come forward with being, you know, more helpful for you. But, you know, if you do need a chance to get on your feet and find your way, you can come live with me. And that was the biggest escalation point was when we moved in together, because now it was just the two of us. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, he stopped working for his uncle. Um, and I think he would use like a little bit of money. Like I never got rent from him. I never got utilities from him. I I covered everything. It's embarrassing to admit. Sometimes it's hard to look back and not cringe a little bit, but you know, I thought I was helping a friend get on their feet. Um, the only issue was he wasn't 
doing anything to really get on his feet. And did you say anything to him? Not at first. I think I just liked his companionship and I liked his company. And my justification at the time was, well, you know, I'd be paying this anyways, even though there was no way I would have. I mean, yes, I was I was definitely chunky then, but he ate a lot more than I did. Um, Drank like a fish. That's an expensive, expensive thing to keep up. I would say before we had moved into the apartment, I was pretty good with budgeting and credit cards and keeping up, and I could not keep up financially with him. And he just didn't really, he would kind of talk about different opportunities sometimes, but nothing ever came to fruition. It never came to be. Yeah, it wasn't until much later that I started demanding he needed to get a job. So eventually a gradual isolation starts to happen. So break this down for us. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, things had been a bit rocky with me and my folks, you know, about age, ages 18 and 19. Um, But I, I've always been pretty close with my parents. I, there's this kind of bond I think you have when you're like an only child or an only girl. Your parents kind of dote on you, but, you know. um, He just had this ability to look into the weaknesses of what I perceived in our relationship and just magnify them he any friends that I would have over I had I mean to be honest for the way he kind of subtly undermined me as this kind of nerdy introverted girl (laughs) um I had a good set of friends I had a lot of friends from college and from high school um but any friend I had over he would the moment they left he there was he criticized their appearance. He criticized how they were. He would criticize their personality or just be like, I don't know why you hang out with people like that, you know, always just undermining them. And my perception of him, I think, was super warped because he, you know, in the back of my mind, he was so right about my ex. How could he not be right about everyone else, you know, um, because of all that, that trust? It didn't really help one day when um, my aunt had called me and she kind of, she's always been like a big sister to me. Um, We're actually closer in age than she is with my mother. My aunt was a little off the top rope in her approach of just being like, I, you know, I can't understand why you're letting this guy use you, da, 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 just like came off the top rope, like yelling practically. And of course, you know, me being 19 going on 20, I'm super defensive. Um, and then I, my folks in the background kind of joined in on it. And so I didn't talk to them for about a month. I want to say like, I was just like, I'm done with you guys. I did eventually, you know, my family wanted to reconnect with me and I, I did want to reconnect with them, even though there was, you know, some harsh feelings. Um, so my ex actually was suggesting to me what to say. He actually fed me what to say to them to let them know that he was good for me. Um, not proud of that either. Um, but I, you know, we did come back together, but it was definitely a little more distant with my family. I never told them about, they didn't know that he and I were intimate. Um, I think anyone could probably have perceived that I had feelings for him. Yeah. And so that isolation would happen. Um, 
around this time, you know, he was always, he always seemed to be in the pursuit of women, even though, you know, he was claiming to have this deep love for me and he could see my inner beauty, um, even though physically I just wasn't his type. Um, so there was a point where I was like, you know, I should be able to go on dates too. <laughs> you know, like I wanted to at least try because I want to say at least three, four months. And I was like, I don't know if this is going to happen. So it's like I had these little glimpses of wisdom that kind of would shine through the otherwise, you know, cloudy skies. But yeah, I mean, I had gone on a date with like an old friend that I knew. He didn't, when I got home, um, my ex didn't talk to me for like three days, totally stonewalled me. Anytime if I talked about potential interest in somebody, um, he was not really being a friend to me. He would talk about how this person's a creep or this person just wants to use you for this. They're not really attracted to you. Even people in our social group that I knew maybe had some attraction to me. He'd be like, oh, no, no. You know, in old conversations, they said you're ugly. I remember just being like, wow, I guess I really like that's where the gaslighting was starting. You know, like thing the way that I perceived things, he would always have a, a way to spin it. It seemed like it was only his friends now that were okay. And my friends were just kind of slowly getting fizzled out. And even when I made new friends and tried to bring them by, he always had a problem with them. Well, with a comment like that, he's isolating you, but it's also, um, it's a put down. He's knocking your self-esteem. He's knocking your self-acceptance of yourself. It's putting worth into his hands and his beliefs as being this truth teller of a situation. And it's a triangulation where he is using other people and their opinion of you to make it feel like it's not, it's everyone who's thinking this about you to really put you lower and lower and that's where he wants to have you in this whole entire situation. I know. Looking back on it, Brandon, it's kind of like, I'm, it's just hearing it from you. I'm all like, God, those are like schoolyard tactics. You know, they're so basic, you know, but um, it's amazing how, how they implement them as adults, you know? And so it, and it was always slowly over time. I mean, there's still times that we partied and had a lot of fun. Um, but he would, he had a lot of mean streaks too, especially when he drank. There were a couple of girls that would come by that, um, one in particular, uh, was a married person in kind of like a polyamorous relationship. And he literally asked her, do you want to play? No discussion with me. No. And I'm, I'm in the room. So it's obvious I, I'm supposed to be involved in this situation, but there was no discussion. There was no, like, I knew that was some that was something he had a leaning for, but it absolutely, like, blindsided me. And so, like, I felt like I had to go along with the situation. Otherwise, what are they going to do? Just, like, sleep together in front of me? <laughs> and, you know, it happened another time with a different person, and I cried during the situation it seemed like he was always seeking always seeking women and he had this weird new age justification for it like he needed their energy because of his cancer and now i look back on it and i'm like wow that's that's rich um but like 
it bothered me. It ate at me so bad. I mean, how could it not? You know, because I it kept made, making me question, well, why aren't you picking me? Why not me? You know, like I've put in the work. I've put in so much work in this, you know, friendship relationship. It was painful. And there were many times I would just, I would start crying. You know, that's kind of my default. I'm one of those people. If I'm super happy, I cry. If I'm super touched, I cry. If I'm really angry, I cry, you know. And so he would just come in and just be like, oh, you're so sensitive. And it's such a sweet thing about you. It's one of the things I love about you. But, you know, you've got to look to yourself for validation. You know, you got to get more secure. You're just, you're so insecure. You know, he would, he, it was always presented in this very loving, tender way, but it was really shifting. It everything away from your actions are hurting me you know you doing this is hurting me and I don't know and I would I would express my doubts a lot you know be like I'm not sure if I'm okay with this you know his I wasn't his type you know he had a thing for very slender big butt kind of redheaded blonde girls and I was physically the opposite of that he coached me on, like, he knew I wanted to lose weight. And so he would like coach me on how to diet, but then he would like make me stuff or order things that would sabotage it. It was kind of like he was the poison and he was the cure. It always came back to what was the defect in me? What was the insecurity in me? You know, I need to work on my affirmations. He was so much about that. To this day, as a, like, you know, I work as a therapist and like, there's a part of me that kind of cringes when I hear the word affirmation, even though I'm recommending them. Because I'm like, got corrupted. So he is very much in control here. There's an element of spiritual abuse going on in this new agey talking sort of way. He started off as this hero confidant. Trust was built. He gives you this dangling carrot of a relationship. Isolation has occurred. I mean, you are in it and you are afraid to lose it. And sometimes you feel like you won, you get this relief, but then an abuse happens and then there is this despair. So it's like you're living in his world. It's his world and you are playing a part in it. Sometimes you are even a flying monkey in a way. And this is really at this point just this puppet master and he's really just pulling the strings. Definitely, definitely. Um, it was the dangling carrot, you know, the isolation, a lot of triangulation, a lot of control. Um, things really came to a head, you know, going into like the first time he got physical. Um, and he just goes on this tear, just like saying he can't believe what a terrible person I am. And I'm, a, I'm such a, you know, you know, add expletives here. I'm sure I, to be honest, I probably blocked a lot of it out because that was a very horrible, intense night. And so he gets out this poem that he wrote for an ex-girlfriend who cheated on him, it was terrible to him, according to him. I, when I look back on the things he says, who knows what was, what was actually truth. And so I'll never forget, oh, and I can feel my hands balling into fists as I say this, but um, he's reading it to me and he looks at me because one of the lines of it was thin schism of a being. And he just looks me dead in the eyes and he's all fat schism of a being. My eyes just widen. And I was like, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, hell no. Like, I'm done. Like, 
part of me was like, I'm not listening to this anymore. So I reach forward to grab the poem so he'll stop this tirade of abuse. And he puts me in a headlock and punches me in the head, screaming at me like a banshee. Um, like, how dare I attack him? And I, you know, kind of like, you know, recoil and I'm just in just this complete shock. And I'm shaking like, it feels like the world, like my whole foundation has just fallen out from under me. And like, I don't know how to describe it. It's almost like your body just feels shaky and like there's no ground at all. And he just keeps going on this tirade. I finally, I don't know what I was thinking. I, I was like, this is such darkness. Like I realized, I like I could literally just feel like tunnel vision happening. And I was like, this is total darkness. You know, he's yelling, he's going to leave. He, you know, he, I'm just such a terrible friend. I mean, he said some really foul, terrible, traumatizing things to, to me. Um, but I remember just finally going, you know what? My family's never going to understand me. I don't have, sorry. Sorry. I didn't feel like I had anybody anymore because he was it. He was all I had. And it was obviously over and no one would understand. You know, he had painted this picture of everybody else in my life just being awful and not really seeing me. And so to feel like this one person who sees me absolutely hates me, I decided I was done. So. I decided I was going to take my life. And I went into the bathroom with the carpet razor and made a feeble, I would say a fairly feeble attempt because my pain tolerance isn't great. And I think he got wise to the fact that it was pretty getting pretty quiet. And he and I was in the bathroom for a long time. And so he wrestled the door open somehow and like grabbed me and pulled me out of the bathtub and helped me kind of patch up my wounds. And he got real quiet, real quiet. And I don't, I, I, I kind of blanked out a lot of what happened, I think. I know that the next day, I think we went to bed, but I think the next day we went out to eat and he was basically saying, I can never do something like this again. He was very disappointed in me. He couldn't believe I was this far gone as to do something like this. And just to give you some context, Brandon, this is a guy who would regularly self-harm. Um, and I'm saying he would like, he would carve stitches in a stitch pattern into his own arm and take pictures. And he's just like, he basically said, if I ever did something like that, he would definitely leave if I ever did something like that again. And it was very tenuous. So that was like the first time and it was, it was bad. It was bad. That was definitely when things got dark, I think. So eventually you do get pregnant, even though your ex said that he was infertile and you decided that you were going to give this baby up for adoption because having a child wasn't the right decision for you. 
and you also don't end up telling your parents that you were going to have a child out of fear. And when you mention this to your ex, he then reinforces this fear that it will not go well with them, which kind of keeps you very isolated during this pregnancy. And at this time, you do end up moving to a new state. He's still not working. Uh, The baby is born. This maternal instinct kicks in with you, which was pretty devastating to you once you gave birth. You didn't realize that that was going to happen. It was there. But you did give up your daughter for adoption. So what happens from here? We end up, um, the place we were in was not in the best neighborhood in the city that we lived in. So I actually, through a connection at work, um, found a much nicer uh, apartment complex. I mean, it literally looked almost exactly like Melrose Place, if anyone remembers that show from back in the 90s. But, um, and it had the same vibe. Like, it was a very small, I think there were only like 13 units, but really nice. And yeah, my ex was also ever the guitarist, always playing, you know, tortured musician type. Um, We actually had a guitarist that lived there that was total boomer. Like, you know, my a lot reminded me a lot of my dad. Yeah, everyone just kind of we all just kind of mingled. There were a lot of things I was seeing I wasn't really too fond of. And I'd even seen it in the state we lived before where it's like he would my ex would just butter people up when he was around them. And then as soon as he left, he would talk mad trash. And I, I remembered even going like, if you feel that way, why are you friends with them? And it was pretty obvious that for him, everyone had a function. Everyone had a benefit. I remember just being like, yeah, I don't know. If I don't like someone, I just don't hang out with them. I don't see the point of really you know, suffering their company. But what I noticed him doing at this new complex was he was lying to everybody about his name. He was using his brother's name. He was telling them that he was working when he very intermittently worked. I mean, if he could do like, if he could help paint a house, he would, but it it was not even enough to contribute. I would say more than a couple hundred dollars. It was very minuscule. But he was telling everyone he was like in porn films, which was just like, oh my God, like you really think highly of yourself. <laughs> Um, and he just lied and lied and lied and lied. And so as I'm working and I'm making new friends at my job, of course, I'm noticing he's finding problems with my new friends at my job. In fact, actively steps in between a friendship. And I'm starting in a weird way to kind of rediscover myself more. Like Skinny Puppy had gotten back together, which I was so excited about. And they were going on tour. So I actually got to see them live. But my ex wouldn't go with me and found beef with the friend that I went with. But I remember just like one day I just got sick of his lying. But I mean, a lot of stuff starts kind of bubbling up. Like I notice he is very possessive of me. Like there there was some people in like the crowd we were hanging out with. Like one was kind of starting to flirt with me a little bit. And I was like, huh, huh, maybe you. And he immediately was like, yeah, she's not looking for anybody right now. So, I mean, the rules were totally, you know, opposite. Mutual friends had actually um, tried to kind of set him up with this belly dancer. Um, And it was so funny because she comes over, she goes into my room, she gets dressed in her belly dance gear, and she kind of does a little song for, for both of us. 
And I swear she clocked him immediately. And she actually like it kind of ignored him as he was trying to engage with her and actually like just took me aside. And she was like, oh, honey, you got to get you know, this is not a healthy situation. Like she's talking with me about it. And it's obvious she's not into him at all. But she just for some reason, what she was saying was starting to land. I was going, she doesn't even know us and she can see there's something really wrong here. Um, we had other mutual friends, like a musician who was actually kind of having an earnest talk with him about like, dude, you need to get a day job. Like, this isn't right for you to be like leeching off of her. You know, it was weird. Like somehow people just were seeing, I guess they were just seeing through it. And I think he could sense that I was distancing. So of course he calls me at work one day and he's like, I've done some thinking and I've decided you're the one for me and decides let's be in a relationship. So Hook, Hook pulls me back in. I don't think he understood, though, that he had it a lot better as my friend because now that we were dating, I had expectations. I was like, well, as my partner, now you really need to get a job. And so I was just way more on his case about being a, getting a job, being more responsible. So there's a lot of, I guess, resentment starting to build up as it seems like no matter... To be honest, no matter what way I accommodate him, he just can't seem to get it together to work in any way, shape, or form. Like, I think around this time, mail from home was a big thing. We looked into that, but he didn't do it. He never did it. So right about the time we're moving out of this apartment into another one, I'm just kind of like, I'm like, bro, you're on thin ice. Um, And there were multiple reasons. Like one time we had gotten in a fight and as... I tried to call him on the phone on my way to work. He just kept sending me to voicemail. I had this random feeling in my gut and was like, both of our phones were under my name and under my account. So I looked up what he called and it was a dating line. And I went into just this black rage where I went up to my boss and I said, I'm sorry, I'm not feeling well. And I'm sure he could tell just by the the way I was probably vibrating with intensity that I was not feeling well. <sighs> so I come home and I'm so angry. Like I, I pound on his door and he refuses to open it. And so I start just like kicking it and he opens it and I literally just shove him out of the way and I just grab his stuff and start throwing it on the floor. And I'm like, you need to get the fuck out of this house. Like I was... I guess that's probably reactive abuse. <laughs> I'm not my proudest moment, but it was just, he was obviously betraying me. Um, and of course he has, you know, he's saying he's so sorry. It's just, he needed someone to talk to. And I was being so mean to him that morning. And I just was, you know, just, you know, he needed, he just, he needed to talk to someone and get support. And I, I 50% bought it, but it there was very much like this, like, I don't know how to describe it. It's like, on one hand, it's like, on the surface, I kind of believe you, but I'm going to be watching you now. He's still continuing to drink. I, I told him I really wanted him to cut down his drinking. I'm basically starting to place expectations. I'm placing boundaries. And at one point, I think I had left a little bit of cash out on like my coffee table or something. And he just invites these random sketchy people into our house while I'm asleep, um, partying. 
So I have to get up for work. And that $5 was supposed to buy me my coffee and it's gone. And that was just the straw that broke the camel's back. And I remember just being like, that's it. We're done. You've been here a month. You haven't done anything, you know? And I, I literally that day went to work and I bought a bus ticket for him online and was like, you need to go home. And I sent him packing uh, within about two weeks. And it was like a mixed bag because there was so much resentment. There was so much anger. You know, my brain was really starting to make a lot of connections on all the dishonesty I'd experienced from him and all the unfairness. And I mean, this was like, what, 2004, 2005? My concept of abusive relationship was, well, clearly they have to be like beating you up all the time. It was a very generic societal kind of viewpoint. I didn't know about the different faucets of it. He ends up living with his family. Um, I start, oh man, it felt like a vacation having him away at first. I was, just to paint a little bit of a picture, my grocery bill got reduced to like 30% of what it was. Like he ate me out of house and home that much. Um, I was able to go out with my friends, but it's just like, it felt like I could be me again. But he was sending me mixtapes, you know, like he knew I liked Oingo Boingo. So he sent me that. Oh, but then he sent me like this very customized mixtape. And I still hate the song Wild World by Cat Stevens because of it. (laughs) Because it's so just like, hope, hope life goes well for you, but it's going to be really hard for you. It's just like this, like, really patronizing message in a way. You know, like, well, if you're going to leave, that's fine, but just know. It's hard out there like he made it sound like and I think one of the things I really believed with him was like he was protecting me he was looking out for me almost like a parent so this is where a lot of escalations occur um because even though he's making these overtures I'm still going out and doing what I want I'm still hanging with friends having a good time he calls and I remembered at one point I was hanging out with these girlfriends who were just like, you know, doing shots. And um, he calls and he asks to speak with them. And I was so tired of him blowing up my phone. I just, I was just like, what do you want? And he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm hanging out with friends. And he's like, well, let me talk to him. I'm like, sure. So I hand the phone over. And so he totally just butters them up and is talking about how much he just loves me and he misses me so much. Just really milking it. And so finally, I'm like, okay, I'm like, okay, okay. And I grabbed the phone from my friend and I'm like, I'm going to go have fun now. Goodbye. Hang up on him. And so he calls and leaves a voicemail. And my friends are like, oh my gosh, December, he's so sweet. Why are you so cold to him? You know, just totally like they did not understand that I had a big backlog. And so I just simply, you know, he calls again. While we're talking, and I send him straight to voicemail, and he leaves me just this foul, mean, you know, you fucking bitch, blah, 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 voicemail. And so I listen to the voicemail and I put it on speakerphone and I let my friends listen. I said, This is also him. And they are just, you just see their eyes just widen and they're like, Oh my God, that's psycho. (laughs) Like, that's Jekyll and Hyde. I was like, That's what I was dealing with, not the first one. And so, um, yeah, so basically he's doing everything he can. He's blowing up my phone. He's texting me. He's still kind of playing the victim and, oh, I'm really broke. 
you know, so I wired him a little bit of money. At one point we're talking and he starts saying he's going to kill himself, like blatantly threatening it. And, you know, as soon as he gets off the phone, I, he's, he's going to, you know, I can't even remember how he said he was going to do it, but I was freaked out. And so I was keeping him on the phone as long as I could, losing sleep. I ended up, you know, he, he hangs up on me, obviously to cause concern, and he wouldn't answer his phone. So I call his uncle and leave a message saying, please check in on him, make sure he's okay. The very next day he calls, says he didn't appreciate the fact that I called his uncle. And I was like, well, I was worried about you. I was really concerned. You know, I thought you were going to hurt yourself. He's like, well, I mean, you should have known I wasn't going to do it. I'm like, bro, you said you were going to do it. <laughs> like you were, you sounded deadly earnest, like so much confusion. And I was like, you shouldn't say that if you're not intending to do it, you know? And he, he's like, well, I got, he's like, oh God. And he, he starts like coughing vigorously. And he was probably knowing him, he was probably smoking weed or God knows what else, but it's, he hangs up and he starts saying, oh my God, I have to go to the hospital. And I'm like, okay, why? He's like, I'm not feeling good. I think it's my lung cancer. I was like, yeah, you better get to the hospital then. Well, I check his phone records. And what's really weird is he didn't, he didn't have a car. He didn't call 911 from his phone because his phone was still under my account and my name. So I can see any phone call he makes. So every five, 10 minutes, like clockwork, he's calling me. And it was amazing how efficient the emergency room was that he was in. I mean, they ushered him in after 10 minutes. Um, then he's getting an MRI and he's getting a CAT scan. He's getting all this stuff done in the span of five, 10 minutes. And yet I don't hear any voices in the background. I don't hear. And usually if someone's on a cell phone, you can hear something. Not, it sounds like It sounds like I do now, like that slight echo from a room. And I'm just going... You know, I'm I'm kind of like outwardly expressing concern, but inwardly I'm going, this doesn't seem right. There's something odd about this. And especially when I, I asked him, I was like, well, what do you know who your doctor is? He's like, it's like Dr. L. McCallum. And I was like, okay. So he's like, I got I gotta go. The nurse, the nurse needs to talk to me and hangs up. And so I knew it. there's only one hospital in the town he lived in. So I called the hospital. I asked, do they have someone with his description? And they're like, no. You have this doctor on staff. No. So he calls me back and I was like, I called. You're not there. You're in your room, aren't you? And he's like, how fucking dare you? Like gets super indignant, starts yelling at me. Can't believe I would be such a cold, untrusting bitch. Oh my God. Just going off on me and, and yelling, I better tell him I believe him. I better do it. And I was like, or what? You know, just like, or what? I was like, I can't believe you would lie to me about something like that. And I was like, did you, I was like, this must mean you lied about the lung cancer, huh? And he's threatening to call my parents and tell them about our daughter if I don't tell him I believe him. And so, of course, gritting my teeth begrudgingly, I go, sure, I sure I believe you. So um, I did talk to him the next day and he did admit that he had lied. And I'm like, how could you lie to me about something like that? I was like, that is one of the most evil things you could do to a person. And he's like, well, I just needed to know that you cared. And I'm like, that's not how you do it. So eventually you move back to your home state. You moved in with your parents. You got a job. 
you started dating a guy and that guy just wasn't what you wanted and then you unblocked your ex because you started missing him and you were having these addiction withdrawals and it happens to a lot of people and you end up getting back together with him but that doesn't last very long so what is the event that ends everything can i just say that i i think few people are as grateful as i am for the fact that this was right before i was turning 25 and as some of us may know, that's when your brain finishes growing. And I swear it was like a new lens got put in my vision. Like, and also just, I was getting me back. I was getting my friends from Seattle back. In fact, my absolute best friend to this day, she hunted me down through, I think it was MySpace back in the day and found me and me and her were going to get together. And so I was just so excited to have me back, but, but yeah. Around this time, I had talked with my folks and we we talked about the possibility of uh, my ex coming to move in with us where we lived and staying in my room with me. Um, just to add a little more background information, I had finally told them about my daughter and it broke their hearts, um, especially my mom. She felt really terrible that I didn't feel like I could tell her. My mom, I've only seen her cry a handful of times in my life, and that was one of them. And, you know, I told her, you know, I'm never going to keep something like this from you again. She was surprisingly forgiving and understanding. And she told me, she said, if that situation, like, I hope it never happens again. But if it does, we're not going to, we're not going to condemn you. We're not going to, we're not going to disown you for it. You know, we, we would like to have our grandbaby, you know? And so I, I'd showed them pictures. So it was, I think a lot of that was to get ahead of my ex ever using that as a threat. Um, but also I felt really guilty about keeping it from my family, but it's really weird. Um, when my ex moved in with us, there was something about it now being more of my parents and us that really brought everything into focus. Like if it was foggy, the fog was clearing. I'm one of those people, like for some reason, if I play chess with somebody, I will get my butt beat. But if I see people playing chess and I can sit next to someone, I, I will know exactly what moves to make. And it was almost like that when he came back. Like I could see through the interactions he was having with my parents exactly how he was with me. Like it just started, the light bulb started clicking. So, I mean, at first it was kind of like a little bit of a honeymoon. You know, it was really nice having him back. And, you know, we'd listen to music. He, oh my God, he even got a job. But he was definitely helping himself to a lot of things around the house um i was noticing so many inconsistencies like he had claimed all this time to have a broken back yet he had moved a couch into this woodshed that my parents had that had electricity he did this by himself he would go into their garage and help himself to literally anything there without asking so he grabbed speakers or whatever he felt he needed the big one was he had connected with our neighbor's nephew, who was like 16, 17 years old, and was inviting him to come hang out in the shed and smoke weed. And I told him, I said, you know, my parents are cool with that. You can't do that. You cannot be doing that shit. And he just was kind of like, whatever, I, I know what I'm doing. And I was like, bro, this is my parents' property. If, you know, they could be liable for this. I kind of, I basically told him like, I will throw you under the bus. 
you know, if this is discovered, because um, this was not okay. But what really set it off was the fact that um, he started like expressing resentment about me to my parents, basically saying, I don't understand why she has to go to Seattle and be around her friends. I don't, that doesn't make any sense. I, I don't understand it. You know, um, and my mom just kind of looks at him and is just kind of shrugs and she's like, well, she works hard. She deserves to have fun. But things really came to a head when I had gone to visit one of my friends in Seattle and he calls me and starts giving me a bunch of a uh, really hard time about it, accusing me of sleeping around. And I remember just being like, dude, I need to go to bed. And I hung up on him and he calls my friend's house phone, which I had never given him. I had never given him her house phone. So clearly he'd been going through a lot of my things and my phone. So my mom comes to pick me up from the airport from this trip. And she tells me that um, my parents were very used to me being very defensive of my ex. So she was being very ginger with how she was approaching this. And she was like, well, me and your dad found out that your ex has been having people over. And I was like, oh, and apparently these kids had stayed overnight in the shed, like two of them. And I was like, oh, my mom's like, yeah. And we told them to leave and that they're not what they own to not come back. And we're trying to figure out what to do. And so my mom starts throwing out all these ideas and possible solutions of how to make it. So my ex, you know, only has access during, you know, to the shed during these limited times and blah, blah, blah. And as she's just going through it, I just shake my head and I look at her like just dead in the face. And I said, why don't you just kick him out? And she was like, what? <laughs> like she could not believe that I said it. I, and I went, mom, I, I was like, that is way too much trouble. I was like, he clearly doesn't respect the rules of the house. I, you know, I, and I told her, I was like, I told him, you know, he, <laughs> that this wasn't okay. And he evidently was still doing it. I was not very nice to him for the last week. Um, I basically kind of unloaded all the resentment that I think I had been holding on to for so long. And I'm not terribly proud of it, but I was just so done with him. There were, there were a lot of other, you know, there's, there's some things that weren't even mentioned, but there were just a lot of things where it was pretty obvious he was only coming back to my folks because he hoped he could live with me again and live off of me again. And the look on his face when I told him, that's never going to happen. You will never live with me again. He was like, just total shock. Short story long. Um, he gets really angry and decides to call my mom and le left some pretty nasty voicemails accusing my father of being a pedophile and accusing um, basically talking in graphic detail about the type of sex that me and him would have. So we went to his work and confronted him, which was probably not the wisest thing to do. And then later, he brought a bike by that was ours and left a note with this very distorted, twisted version of what he thought my sex sexual history was for my parents. Just, it was this nauseating, horrible lack of boundaries. But yeah, I ended up just bringing his stuff to the last of his things to him. and. I was going to try the nice approach. And I was just like, just want to let you know, I wish you well. And he's just like, oh, you know, I really hope you and I can reconnect. And I just looked him straight in the eyes. And I said, after what you did, I will never trust you again. I can never trust you again. And I, I started just crying. I was like, I'm sorry, but we just have to let things go. Um, 
or he would intermittently call my work. He'd left like four really threatening voicemails right before my birthday. And I actually made a point of it to transcribe the voicemails. And I printed it out and put it in a box to remind myself, this is who he is. So your relationship ends mm-hmm. and then the healing process came. So walk us through your healing. I actually went to go see a hypnotherapist who had the same name as him. Hypnotherapy helped a little bit. Like, I think I wanted to kind of target more childhood stuff when I initially started. But to be honest, um, most of the awareness did not come till much later. I think after Obamacare came into effect and mental health counseling became um, required in insurance, that's when I started being like, okay, now I can afford it. And now I, I can work on myself. Honestly, having gone to school and having been a psychology student and they had free counseling there, that helped me get into it. It wasn't actually until I was in my grad program teaching a women's PTSD class and my internship, we looked at the power and control wheel and it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was just like, physical abuse is only one piece of the pie. There's like... 11 other pieces or seven other pieces. Um, Yeah, actually, the counselor that I have now, I found through a friend um, who does EMDR. And we have just started targeting this because there's there's been some backlog to go through. But also, like, through my own journey as a therapist, um, starting the somatic experiencing program, there's actually, I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but I'll never forget, like, having gone through my first seminar, gone through my first sessions. And there's actually a person who is kind of like my ex, but not that I was involved with, who's kind of like my ex, but not as bad. But I'll never forget being around him one last time. And like, I'm standing there and I'm like feeling my body, you know, I'm kind of just feeling into my body and my impulses as I'm talking to this guy. And I'm like, holy shit, these aren't butterflies. This isn't chemistry. I want to leave. I want to flee. Like, you know, like this is anxiety because this person is creepy. Like it was the weirdest thing to like have that finally be separated, if that makes any sense. And so, yeah, the healing has been, I mean, I wish I could say I had done it sooner, but I kind of did what I think a lot of us codependents might do, which is, you know, you get into a, a new, a better relationship and lather, rinse, repeat. Um, but I think like for me personally, doing EMDR, doing somatic experiencing have been huge game changers for me. Just letting myself kind of renegotiate the trauma and go through it in my body have been huge. Um, but also like no contact was the best thing I could do. And if you had any words of wisdom for everyone listening, what would it be? Oh my gosh. So many things. Um. I mean, of course, everyone says trust your gut, and I'm with that, absolutely. I would also say be very mindful of what's your responsibility and what isn't. Um, Definitely, I think keeping healthy supports and letting them know what's going on is a really good idea. I guess I want to quote like this life coach that I I used to listen to. Like, he's great. I don't agree with all of his views, but he's awesome, and he studies narcissistic abuse i love this quote which is abandon all sincere communication with the insincere and so i think what i would want to say to anyone who is going 
through this. And I'm hoping, especially if anyone has encountered this guy, um, really, I think it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to weigh the evidence. It's okay to have doubt. If you're dealing with someone who is horribly insincere and lying, you don't owe them everything. You don't really owe them anything. And I think a lot of what really messed me up was that I always felt like I owed him something. You know, I always felt forever indebted to him for helping me get out of an abusive relationship. And it's like the debt was never paid. Um, so I, I guess like the big takeaway I would say is you don't owe anyone anything. You get to decide. And it's okay for people to do nice things for you and to just let them do the nice thing. You know, you don't have to keep paying them back for it. And also listen to your body. It'll tell you. <laughs> well, December, you did a great job today. And you were just very clear on everything. And you came in today with a purpose of what you wanted everyone to learn and call things out on and sharing your feelings of situations and you just did a really good job and I can't thank you enough for being here today you know your part of you today was being a survivor and showing people you know everything that was going on and then part of you was the therapist in you and you know wanting people to understand you know the body aspects of, of things and that this can also happen to someone who is in this field. So I can't thank you enough for, for being here with us today and sharing your story to help everyone. All right. Well, thank you, Brandon. I really appreciate you having me on the show and I just really hope this can help somebody. That's the reason I wanted to share it is just if anyone's been through something similar or can find like resonance with it, I, I mean, for me personally, listening to this show has been really helpful because I hear so many little facets of experiences that I'm like, yeah, me too. And it's like, it's, it's like on the one hand, it, man, it sucks that you went through that too. But on the other hand, it's like, oh, it's not just me, you know? So, yeah. Well, December, thank you once again for being here with us. And if you want to be a guest like December was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. Also at our website, we have our very own support group at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says support group. When you click on that button, it takes you to our very safe social network where in there we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoon, and Saturday night. We have forum boards for you to post on to get the validation that you need from other survivors just like you. And you can validate other survivors that are there as well. It's a great group of people in our support group. So join today at NarcissistApocalypse.com. 
And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. At DomesticShelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you are going through. They have every phone number, every email, and every website address for shelters and agencies, no matter how big or small your town is. DomesticShelters.org has it there. It is a great resource. It is a great website with great people. That is DomesticShelters.org. And that is it for today's episode. So for myself and December, we hope you have a good night.